Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. Very good morning to you. We're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Such a pleasure to be here. We've got uh, Belinda Dugan uh, coming up. Uh, She's going to be talking to us about reading, writing, and arithmetic and what's happening in our schools mm, i think it's going to be scary and also oh we've got the wonderful phyllis titchenen uh, on western a price and soil health more of this good stuff stay tuned don't forget tane webster politics explained he'll have some listener questions for us to answer thank you for having us along remember you can text me 2057 email me inbox at rallycheck.radio please do love to hear your suggestions Love to hear your comments. Love to get your praise. Love to get your criticism. I love all of it. Communicate with us. Become part of the community. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media. And now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send us a text 2057. Uh, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. A lot of talk 
for, forever about standards in our school system, about the basics, the three R's, reading, literacy, writing. Um, but who knows what is actually happening? Because, well, we saw the PISA results come out this week, not looking good, we'd slip down. We have the anecdotes, but we have someone who has been at the, well, they don't call it the cold face, do they? They call it the chalk face. Good morning, Belinda Duggan. Have I got your name correctly? You have. Good morning. Nice to nice to talk. Tell me, how did you get into teaching? Well, I left school in the mid-90s, uh, went into banking for a, t- for a little while, um, mm. But I had a fam- I, I came from a family of teachers. My aunt was a teacher trained here in Auckland, and my grandfather was a teacher. He trained here in Auckland as well. Um, and after about a year, I felt that uh, banking wasn't really for me, that I felt I could do more. Um, and so in the late 90s, I went to Auckland College of Education and studied in the first um, Bachelor of Education teaching. So we were the guinea pigs for that degree. Um, and was that three years? It was. It was three years. So a big um, commitment. It was. And after, um, you know, uh, being in, in the bank and so on, it was quite quite different. But I was 100% committed to the job. Um, and and so I... For- you went Sorry? from earning earning money to paying out money. Yeah, well, and I, I got a student loan, everything like that, um, and ended up, yeah, teaching uh, my first year teaching here in Auckland uh, in 2000. And I only did a year in New Zealand because I was desperate to travel. Uh, so I went over to England after my first year teaching. Uh, and over there, uh, I learnt how to teach. <laughs> I felt, I felt quite um, unprepared for teaching when I came out of teachers' college, even after a three-year degree back then. Uh, and yeah, I felt the curriculum at that time wasn't particularly tight. So when I went to uh, to England and I taught in London, uh, it was very, very structured. We had you know, this is what you do for maths, this is what you do for English, and there was order to it and so on. And so I really, I felt I learned to teach over there. Uh, And that structure was provided by the curriculum. Yes. The standards, the tests, and the textbooks, presumably they all were of one. Yeah, well, the curriculum was very much so. At, At that time, it was called the literacy strategy and the numeracy strategy, and they were uh, very, uh, in year three, I mean, as a teacher coming from New Zealand, I at first found it quite restricting because I'd been given so much freedom to pretty much do what I liked in my first year teaching and, and throughout Teachers College, we'd been trained in that way. So at first it was a bit of a challenge, but after a while I started to see that the actual structure of that was providing um real uh, knowledge for the students and I was building on the work that the students had done before so I took on yeah how old were the children you were teaching Uh, I took over from a beginning teacher in England into a year four class and then I stayed on for another year three so I had seven to eight year olds and I found yep sorry and in in New Zealand Zealand, I taught a year five class Mm. So I felt 
already after a year, like when I started teaching over there, it, it was very much, uh, this is, you know, the standards are higher already. And that was 20, nearly, nearly 25 years ago. So, oh, that was 2001 I was over there. So a long time ago. My goodness. And the standards were higher. And I can remember getting my year three class to write pen pal letters. You know, it was in the time when we didn't have technology. It wasn't really a thing at the time. And I got them to write these pen pal letters at the end of the year that I was going to bring back to New Zealand and hand on to a class that could I would work with back here. And I can remember bringing them back. And I took on a year seven and eight, so form one and two class. And I can remember handing these year three letters to these children and they said to me, gosh, miss, they write better than we do. And that was 20-something years ago. And I can only say that it's just got worse over all those years. But that was 20 years ago. We were behind. Yeah. But that's not six months behind. No. No. That's not a year behind. No. No, and I mean, behind. that's it. I've, I've sent, um, so I was working uh, with some students last year. A school was creating their own exemplars for writing. Sorry, just just Sorry. come back yeah. to you. How long did you have in England teaching? Uh, I taught there for about, sorry, a year and a half. Yeah, I taught, taught there for a year and, and a half. Came, then I came back to New Zealand. Came back. And you were shocked then? I was shocked. And also um, I found, uh, so over there I was using what we call, you know, little mini whiteboards and things. And I came back to New Zealand and I found that there wasn't much um, embracing of what I'd learned overseas. It was still quite insular in terms of their thinking. So I was trying to bring in like these whiteboards and bring in some of the things that I'd been teaching from overseas. But I I, I always felt there was a little bit of a, oh, we don't do it like that. <laughs> and and that was, yeah, I always felt a little bit, uh, try to bring in something like that. But obviously many whiteboards and things like that have taken off in New Zealand, but it took a long time. You know, we're always a bit slower than... It, it just feels like that. And have you been back teaching in New Zealand since that time? I taught, I actually became an art teacher for three years after that. <laughs> and so got out of um, literacy and that whole primary space. And then I went back into, um, you know, a team leader role and intermediate and so on. Uh, and then in about... T- 2013, 2014, oh, in 2010, I went to live in Abu Dhabi, of all places, and I taught over there. Mm. Uh, They were recruiting teachers from all over the world who were English-speaking. I had a mortgage at the time. It was was eye-opening. They decided, uh, the Emirate of Abu Abu Dhabi decided that they wanted um, to teach all their Emirati students in English, science and maths, all in English, because they changed the universities in the Emirates so that you had to learn in English. So they needed to prepare all the students to be able to do that. So I ended up teaching a whole lot of Emirati girls who are eight and nine-year-olds 
and they were quite feral to be honest they were <laughs> they were wild um and it was a challenge <laughs> uh but eye opening and we followed at the time the new south wales curriculum for english which was quite structured mm. at the time so uh, I was there for a presumably, year. Presumably, Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi. Presumably, Dhabi. when they made this decision, they were like Singapore, mm -hmm. and they just searched around the world for the best curriculum, the best teachers, and paid for it. They certainly did. You know, and they so recruited the teachers. New South Wales London. curriculum. Yeah, the, at the time at, that the was New ten. South Wales that was must have been yeah. a good one. Yeah, it was. It was quite structured at the time as well. The same thing um, coming from mm. New Zealand. Tell me, um, what was Abu Dhabi like? Abu Dhabi like to live in? Well, at the time I was uh, in my thirties, I was single. Uh, people used to think, "Oh gosh, is, is it safe?" And actually, um, I never felt unsafe over there. I felt that there was. Mm. I mean, human rights was something that was a bit of a challenge to deal with. You know, we saw yes. all sorts of treatment of maids and things like that within the schools that we didn't agree with. Um, but just, you know, you just had to get on with it, really. Uh, we we would go to staff meetings and everything would be in Emirati and we'd be lucky if we got a translator for us. So it was, you know, it was a culture shock, but crazy. Um, the the pay the pay would come in, and we'd go, okay, <laughs> we'll stay a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Pay my mortgage. Where did you live when you were there? I lived in an apartment, so where it was did you all. Live when you were there, where did I live? Part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, it absolutely. It was all deal. paid like, for. Everything was paid for. Apartment. I lived in an apartment that was paid for all by them. Um, I travelled to England three times within that um, that year that I was there. Mm. Um, but I after I actually I came home to New Zealand because I I, I ended up um, coming home. So you you were living in an apartment. You got to travel to England in that year. Three times. Um, oh. And the last, uh, over the summer holidays, because the children, you know, it would get really hot in the Middle East. So we were contracted to work as teachers until July, mid-July. But by about early May, it was starting to get hot. So the parents of the Emirati children would pretty much say to their children, eh, it's too hot, don't go to school. So for about six weeks... Uh, we just had to go to school and there were no children. <laughs> it was quite different from New Zealand. And so I went overseas. I went over to England, met my mum in those summer holidays. Um, but unfortunately, on my, I started my first week of teaching back in Abu Dhabi in September of 2011. Uh, and I got a phone call to say my mum was gravely ill um, and she subsequently died of a pulmonary embolism so I flew back immediately from um, Abu Dhabi and it made me kind of reconsider 
what I really wanted going forward in terms of my career. Having just lost my mum and I, I was always very passionate about literacy. And so I I did a bit of work. I went over, over to London for a few months and went to the Olympics and did a few things like that. And when I came back to New Zealand, I ended up in a job working uh, for a professional development company here in Auckland, uh, run, uh, doing primary literacy. And this was in 2014. I don't and know. I loved what it. Does, I don't know, Belinda. I, I feel stupid. What does professional development entail? Well, it, there's there's a whole range of different things. So I was working for a company at the time that was uh, working, uh, they would win contracts with the Ministry of Education at the time. So schools would apply for funding uh, for professional development where they would have uh, what we call a facilitator going into a school and supporting their teachers with their professional development and the teaching of reading, writing and so on. So I ended up um, doing this role and I, I was working in a number of schools in Auckland. I would go in um, working, you know, running workshops or uh, mentoring teachers, working alongside them and things like that. Um, and, and I was would- there for... So would all teachers do this or the ones that were lagging or how did had how, how, how was it identified that this teacher needed professional development? Well, that's a that's a very good question. There actually isn't uh, huge accountability for that. Uh, it's generally a school will uh, apply and say we want some extra support in this particular field and then you negotiate or you talk, discuss with the senior management but generally they like to it involves observations of all teachers and so on but they don't tend to like to uh, single out teachers Mm. Uh, but and how long I mean you'd observe a teacher teaching Mm -hmm. you take notes Mm -hmm. I mean it'd be hard to do this in a way that wouldn't get their heckles up Oh, it is a challenge, absolutely. Um, and I I struggled a bit at the time because the way that the professional development was what we were expected to do um, was very much driven by what it, it was called um, teaching as inquiry. So teachers sort of inquiring into their own practice and what they thought were their weaknesses and so on. So... Or, or strengths as well, obviously. Mm. Um, but I I felt it was, you know, oh, it was very much, oh, what's my hunch? Why are my children not um, doing well in writing? And so it would be a hunch from the teacher what they think might be happening. But it wasn't really, I felt it wasn't really evidence-based. Mm. It felt very, um, whereas as if you've got professional development facilitators who have the knowledge that really should be going in and identifying, oh, I, these are some strengths, but this is what I think we could potentially work on. But it didn't really come across as that. I didn't feel like it did at the time. Um, and it was and, quite uh, very driven by the ministry. And you would be a relatively young 
teacher, oftentimes with teachers older than you? Yes. More and that was, I mean, that you? was a challenge, absolutely. At the time, um, I think I'd been teaching maybe close to 15 years, but obviously mm. if you look younger, uh, there's all sorts of, you know, there's, there's dynamics within schools. So I think the key was always to um, earn the respect of the people that you were working with. It was, um, and I think if you can demonstrate that you are, and I, I was always, I, I always was willing to model in classes and so on. So I felt that that would always um, break down barriers for teachers yeah. as well. I'm very much a, you know, um, monkey see, monkey do, you know, kind of person or, you know, you go, well, I'm going to go in and I'll, I'll help you, I'll support you. Um, but I would never come in in a way that was, um, I hoped, was in a threatening way. Yes. Uh, well, always, you must yeah. be a very successful teacher to have these roles. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, well, the thing was I, I studied alongside, after doing my bachelor's in the – in 2013, I got my uh, postgraduate diploma and I did it all in language and literacy papers. So that kind of helped me. And I did one mm. called language analysis for the classroom. And I felt that the knowledge that I gained from that, it suddenly was like, you know, a light bulb moment for me because I was learning all these different ways of writing sentences and things that I hadn't really been taught. And I I was passionate and keen to try and share some of that knowledge. Uh, and since that time, I've worked in schools. I uh, I worked in a primary school where I mentored beginning teachers. And so every week I was in a class with these beginning teachers and would support them with their writing programs. And a lot of them really valued it. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, if we're thinking about professional development going forward, we we need to. It's a combination of a whole range of things to do it to do it well. Um, and so now, um, so I I did some. I was working uh, for one of the universities last year, doing structured literacy as well. Um, and learned so much more uh, so much there as well so I'm always trying to learn myself mm. uh, and alongside that I've been running since well it's really been the last two years I've been running my own business called The Right Lesson and I I wanted to provide a resource that would really help teachers going forward um, with their teaching of handwriting because I noticed a huge problem in teaching uh, in schools with the handwriting ability of many students. And so I um, created a whole lot of online videos where I would, where I uh, model and explain how to teach the formation of different letters. So I wanted to be able to upskill teachers and support mm -hmm. them with their professional development, but also teach children at the same time. Uh, and it's proven to be quite successful. Because these days, there's nothing more touching than to receive a beautiful handwritten note. So much more personal, isn't it? 
And it's such a rarity that when you receive one, compared to a Facebook or a tweet or an email, it is quite wrenching. Absolutely. I know even, you know, having lost my mum, I'd rather read her handwritten letters or, or handwriting than than an email that I might have of hers because it's so much more personal. Mm. Um, I'm too embarrassed to do any handwriting because my handwriting is so appalling. <laughs> I can't read it, you know, a week later. Yeah. And you read your mum and dad's letters that they wrote. Yeah. Left school at 14, beautiful mm. handwriting. Well, I think I did it. So a few years ago, I actually, a couple of years ago, I did a survey of teachers um, to find out whether or not, you know, they were trained in handwriting and to the teaching of handwriting. And it turned out that in the 70s, 80s, in 90s, it sort of was about 65%. And from 2000 onwards, uh, 65% said yes, they had some sort of training in it. And from 2000 onwards, that's gone up to close to 90% had no training. So you can imagine the last 20 or so years, teachers have come out of teachers' college with no understanding of the importance of handwriting. And it's through no fault of their own. It's just the, the system itself. So we've got a generation of teachers and students who, who really can't write very well with their hands. Well, I notice they can't write very well with their typewriter. Wow, that's a very good point. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was part of my concern uh, with the professional development. I did a – I really – became quite specific with what I felt was necessary or, or the best way to support teachers. And so I really focused on on things like within writing, uh, sentence structure and punctuation, because there were many teachers who struggled to, and once again, through no fault of their own, but struggled to actually understand what a compound sentence was or a complex mm. sentence was and things like that. Um, and so the thing is, if we don't have the teacher content knowledge because that's not being addressed in the in the um, training, then we're sending students, uh, teachers out without the knowledge. And because we've got 20 years of teachers who don't have certain knowledge as well, mentoring other teachers, it's just sort of a downward spiral at times. And you recently came across the curriculum for next year. Well, yes, I have uh, been working in the secondary space recently and was interested to see what the uh, direction was for NCEA um, and I can I do have concerns that we're not really addressing some of the priorities for students you know um, there are many, they've just brought in the literacy tests NZQA 
literacy tests that all year 10 students have to pass. They have to get credits in order to get NCEA. And there was a test that they did last year and then they, you know, they, the results were so poor back in uh, 22 uh, that you know, there, were, there were alarm bells going on. So I actually saw the combination, the difference in the two tests from last year and compared it with this year. And last year, the students were asked to uh, type out answers and so on. If there was a sentence that needed correcting and so on, they had to type it out. But this year, they changed it up so they would write a sentence. There was one that said something like, um, what, what punctuation needs to go at the end of this sentence? And it was a question mark, but it was a multi-choice question. So it was pretty obvious what the punctuation was and where it needed to go. So they changed it from being able, from writing out the sentence correctly to actually just giving them multi-choice answers. And so there was one other one this year. I think it said something like, um, I didn't go to school, something, I was ill. And there were four options, you know, conjunctions. It was because, although, but, or so, or something like that. They were your multi-choice and they had to choose which word that went in that, that um, space. Well, I asked my year four daughter if she could do it. And she understood exactly both those questions. She could do those. And this was a test for year 10 to say that they're competent and ready for NCEA. So, so year 10 is 14-year-olds. Yeah, for, fourth form. So from that little snapshot of what my daughter, within the, there were other things that they need to do within that test. You know, they have to write some other things as well, but um, aspects of it I felt were a little bit uh, too low or not really setting the benchmark high enough for our students. It must be heartbreaking for you. Well, it is. <laughs> it really is. I, you know, having having children in the system, and I know you know about this, don't you? <laughs> Yes, Children in the system at the moment, you know, and I'm really thrilled that there are changes going ahead in terms of structured literacy and things like that, that teachers are really focusing on that evidence-based in the primary space or in those junior years. But we have got students in, say, year four, five, six. I've got two stepsons in year 11 and year, year eight at the moment. So... I worry about them. Are they getting, you know, their absolute, the, are they reaching their full potential, especially in writing? My um, daughter has an, I have a niece, so she has a cousin who's five weeks younger in England. Um, and I, I see what they do over there and I, I try to sort of follow some of the curriculum here in New Zealand, to the English curriculum, to try and sort of make sure she's on par with potentially what they're doing over there because I feel that their standards are much higher. Yes, we have, our children have cousins in England, night and day. Mm. And then, I mean, I, I spoke to a boy recently who he said he... Um, 
He was year five when he came to New Zealand from, from London. And they gave him a reading test when he got here. And he thought they were joking because it was so easy. He, he, and, and this particular boy seems to think his education's just gone downhill since. Mm. since. And, and I think that's, you know, that's really sad because we do have so much potential. Our kids are amazing and oh, they, they do have the ability to do really well, but they've got to have, um, you know, higher standards. I, I, for some early years with my three young children, sent them to a private school mm-hmm. at huge expense, thinking I'd escape the pitfalls. <laughs> and my experience was equally as dire yeah. because you realize the Ministry of Education, the Malays, is right through the industry. Absolutely. It's so you're, you're, yeah. you're getting a higher number of teachers per mm-hmm. pupil and getting some extra activities. But it's still the same, well, I don't know how to describe it. Oh, I do know how to describe it. Child-centred learning. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely. Teacher. Well, that's it. And the thing is, majority of the teachers who are working in private schools are all trained in yeah. the same system. Yeah, and they so and they're and still forth. following ministry mm. guidelines. A lot of them, they just mm. yeah lower ratios, but not necessarily. Um, maybe a little bit more accountability because parents can question things a bit more. But um, well, what I oh. find sad and difficult and my children are going to school, primary school now, is for parents. It's such an effort to get to get your kids to school and pick them up and do all the activities. And you wonder what the hell is being achieved. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I do worry about that. You know, I my husband always says to me, oh, don't worry about Sophie, my daughter. She's got you at home, but if, like you or any parent, knows what it's like to try and teach your child when they come home from school after yes. they've been at school for six hours, uh, it's, it's a challenge. So and I, they're sick I, of it. Yeah, they are. She, you know, Sophie doesn't want to sit down That's with me. <laughs> so interesting what you say that because I homeschooled my kids for two terms, and the first term we did nothing but have fun. Mm-hmm. In the second term, we knuckled down. But knuckling down meant half an hour a day. Mm. And I mainly concentrated on maths because that's what I know. I didn't know how to teach English very well. And they just flew along Mm -hmm. so fast it was embarrassing. Like, you know, literally in five weeks we would do that year's program because you could get all the resources and purchase them in and it was and they had and that one-on-one instruction you'd pick it up and then they go and they loved they loved it Mm -hmm. and they felt they were good at it and then they go off to school and they come home and they're not good at that yeah i think that's the thing though as well is that that how crazy is that that's half an hour 
and you can get through, motor through the mm-hmm. content so much mm-hmm. more than than hours and hours spent at school. But then a lot of the time that I I hear or see, you know, um, that schools are they they prioritise certain things over other things. So I'm a real advocate for these new an hour of writing, an hour of reading yes. a day. I'm a true advocate for it because um, too often the children are off doing this or that or busy, 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 but not busy, busy doing, you know, they'll be doing yeah. mindfulness, but not doing handwriting. I think, mm. you know, yeah. And where's, where's our priority, our sense of urgency to actually get these kids to really support them and make sure that they're, they're going to be successful in life. Eh? And now we have it being taught through a Maori quote lens. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Well, um, so it's interesting uh, with the new directives from the NCEA, level one, you know, everything has to have a mataranga Māori lens through it. What's level one? So you'll have to help us. Uh, so that. that's school C, effectively okay. school C, yeah. school certificate. Um, it's the first year that they do an NCEA. And so the directives are pretty much that if you're taking a text, you have to look at it through a Māori lens. Um, and from what I can see, I I have reservations around it because I still think there's, you know, if we're, if we're solely looking through particular things uh, and particular perspectives, it's really going to limit our students with their critical thinking. Um, and it seems to me that it's, it, it is everywhere. Uh, I don't think teachers are keen to question a lot of the the initiatives from the ministry regarding that. Um, However, um, you know, for me, it's always what what do we what what do our kids need to be successful? And I always, you know, rather than looking at things from that perspective, I'd rather look at the child in front of me. I couldn't care less if that child was red, white, blue, green, yellow, um, pink. I look at the child for who they are and who they their potential and what they can do. And so I think if we can sort of get away from that cultural aspect of really focusing on and boxing children into a particular culture um, and having to identify with that, I think if we can just look at them in a more holistic kind of way and really focus. When when you're looking at this Maori thing, Mm -hmm. um, by the way, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's real talk with... Rodney Hyde, we're talking to Belinda Duggan, we're talking about teaching and standards and how even 20 years ago there was a remarkable difference in standards between here in England, here freewheeling, over there disciplined and structured and it hasn't improved here in New Zealand and now the teachers themselves are product of that system. And now we're talking about looking at everything through a Maori lens. Is it teaching things from a Maori perspective just, or is it being conscious 
that the student is marrying is there's a difference between them i think i think there's uh, well i don't think it's actually 100 percent clear on any of that at this particular time um, really so as you're a teacher uh, well, i mean i haven't done a lot of the the uh training but i have seen you know what the criteria is you know what a program looks like um at a school going forward for nca english and it pretty much says um mataranga maori needs to be woven through texts so um, what would that mean well what does it mean i you know do we if it, if it's not one hundred percent clear, I think to teachers, what does it mean? There are there's some resources out there which have um, looking at from a Fano perspective or looking at it from. But I actually think it's just what we've done all along. It's just changing it up. So it's you know we always look at a text from certain perspectives i i can't see how it's going to make any difference and for me it's 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 taking us away from what the priority is at the moment you know everything we've been doing which has all been culturally significant and and you know we're all always trying to do that which is great but we need to really focus on if we're teaching english we need to teach English and fill those gaps and make sure our students are fully prepared to be able to converse and write in it properly. But if we get sidetracked by um, doing particular things and focusing on on the meaning behind it, you know, at the moment we've got kids who can't, the majority of our students can't write a complete sentence. They actually don't know what a, what a sentence is. So let's go back to that and then potentially look at analysing things through other th another lens. But I, I, I just can't I can't see how it's it's going to make any huge difference. Is is it is it a way, you know I I what I actually think we need to do is look at surveying Māori and, and anybody, all New Zealanders actually, and find out, do we want our children to be educated in English? And do we see it as a priority? And I'm really pleased to see that at least English is going to be an official language of New Zealand because in the curriculum last year, the draft curriculum, the, the um, it said that New Ze English was the default language in the country and I couldn't believe it. Mm relegating it to that but you know what do you think is going on because if the ministry of education mm -hmm. set out over the last 20 years to miseducate and confuse young people yeah. as to who they were and what they are, what's important, what's valuable, what are good principles, mm -hmm. how to do arithmetic, how to read, and how to write clearly and concisely, mm -hmm. how to think critically, how to how science works, how the world works, what history is and geography. 
if they set out to destroy all wonder and learning and knowledge of that amongst young people, you could not have done a better job. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and that's what I, I think if there was a shake-up, what we need to do is we need to look at all the people that have been contributing to education, supporting, you know, there's, there's professional development companies out there that have been given millions and millions of dollars to run professional development in schools. And the government's still paying them money to do that. And what's happened? Has have our outcomes improved? No, they've gone down. Exactly. So and why spend... why keep funding them? Why keep focusing on these particular things? Let's just you know, let's reset. But do you, but do you think? I mean, here's here's I guess there's no answer to this, Belinda. Mm -hmm. But I used to think they were misguided, and that they were dreamers and that they were pinko socialists. I'm talking here about the Ministry of Education. Yeah. Now I think they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, I think so. Really? Oh, mm. my goodness. I think it's a there's a, there's a political agenda behind it all. To I mean, I, I my daughter came home from school the other day, and she said, Mum, I did a Tereo survey today. Oh, okay. What was that? What was it? Oh, and I asked her what some of the questions were. And I wasn't sure where it was coming from or what was going on. And she said, oh, I was asked, does your teacher use Tereo in the classroom? Does, uh, how often do you use it? What do you think about learning it? And so on. They had questions like sometimes, never, or their opinions and so on. So I just questioned, I just asked the school actually for information about the survey out of curiosity. And it turns out that it's actually one being sent out to all. It's got here, Takureo student survey is an online survey designed for New Zealand students in English medium schools from years four to eight. They are wanting to collect, and it's the NZCER, so Council for Educational Research, which is funded by the government, uh, by the ministry. It can help increase awareness of student voice about te reo Māori in schools. It gives you a snapshot of your students' use of it at school, at home, and in the community. So I want to know, personally, why is this data being collected? What are they wanting to do with it? You know? Oh, dear. <laughs> so for me, it felt like a bit of a gotcha kind of moment. Like if if, um, if a teacher's not particularly using a lot of Tereo in the classroom, then it'll be obvious. So are they trying to get gotcha moments of teachers and saying, well, you're not doing it or you are? You see what I mean? Yes, I see exactly what you mean. Mm. So I think I think there's I think you're one hundred percent correct in that. I I don't think they've the ministry's gone into this blindly at all. I think every decision is made um in a strategic kind of way to fit the fit the agenda. 
And I, yeah. it, you know, it really breaks my heart because ultimately I want what's best for all children. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the decisions that the ministry is making in terms of the curriculums and so on is that children who would have, you know, done pretty well in the education system in the past are actually all dropping as well. So not only are our um, is our tail of underachievement growing, but the the students who were performing at higher levels are also dropping as well. And also they're being turned off. Oh, completely. If you're a bright little kid, bushy-tailed, going off to school to learn, and you just get this confused mush. Yeah. Well, and and I think, uh, you know, uh, they talk about technology and so on in the schools, and the, from what I've observed with, say, um, students who are year 9, 10, you know, Form 3, Form 4, when they're in schools, they're on devices. There is this distraction, mm. and the research shows it, you know, if – if your neighbour is on a, on a device, on a computer, then you get distracted, everything. And so in recent times, I've been advocating for working in school and books. And actually, I've found that students, many of them actually really just get on with it, more so when they're physically writing, uh, because they don't have all the other distractions and they're more engaged in the content. Would so you get in trouble mm, for speaking out like this? Potentially. <laughs> you brave girl. I am very brave. Yeah, well, it makes me nervous, but I also, I, I really want what's best for everybody. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best, you know, even with the handwriting. Um, I'm doing what we call... I'm starting a new initiative next year called the PASS project, which is PASS meaning punctuation and sentence structure. So I'm really, I'm always trying my best, but I sometimes feel like I'm um, Do teachers battling. Sit ar- does teachers sit around the staff room Yeah. in your experience mm. and question this stuff? Some do. Some but not all, and it's almost a a topic that's not talked about. Because a within any staff, we're going to get carried away now, you and I. If you're not in, <laughs> if you're not in trouble already, I'll put you in it. Um, <laughs> you don't need to comment on this, but I go into staff rooms school staff rooms when I used to do such a thing and visit mm-hmm. and you actually felt that there were Labour Party apparat- what's that word? sort of yeah. apparatchiks or something mm-hmm. there ready to report you mm-hmm. and that I can imagine if you questioned the extensive use of Tereo mm-hmm. Or if you question the extensive use of looking at everything through a Maori lens, which is preposterous in of itself, mm-hmm. or questioned gender ideology, you would have a black mark and get reported or get accused of being racist or transphobic or all the words 
that they use. And yeah, so absolutely. it doesn't happen. No, that's it. And it's often, um, you know, coming from a perspective of ultimately, yeah, I just want what's best for all children and support them. Well, good for you. Yeah. I, when I was Associate Minister of Education, I'd have Ministry of Education staff mm. uh, work with me, and they would f refer to the ministry as the Kremlin. Yeah. And always, I'm just wandering back to the Kremlin. And I thought it was a joke, you know, yeah. like, but in a funny way, it was a joke with a serious intent. And mm. that they felt like they were living in this ideological camp. And I, I think that's exactly what it is. A lot of what they do is ideological, you know, and it's mm. rather than anything uh, that's even well, can you can, can you imagine Abu Dhabi and Singapore? <laughs> These are countries that have a rich cultural heritage. Yeah. But when they've looked at it, they've said, we've got to teach our kids English. Mm -hmm. Let's go out and get the best. They don't sit there and say, oh, we're going to look at this through a yeah. Abu Dhabi lens or an Arab lens mm. or a Chinese lens or a Malay lens. They say, English is it. Let's get the best. Absolutely. And in a funny way, in doing that, they preserve their culture. Definitely. And, you know, these children were learning. Um, they had their Arabic teachers and they had their English teachers, mm. but they valued it. They valued it. It's not going to be easy for the new government to turn this around. No, but I keep I keep thinking of, you know, the education system here is I, I say it's it's a tugboat or it's it's like a dinghy. It's not an ocean liner. No. England managed to do things quite quickly at pace, you know, to turn things around mm. um, and they've got 67 million people we've got 5 million people we've got you know it's not if if there was just a sense of urgency and we could put the right people in the right places I think it could be turned around pretty quickly and I but mean, unfortunately there you know it's a lot it's the long game isn't it you know it and is. our kids who are in the system at the moment are potentially not going to actually even have any of those benefits of it, but but I always think you know it can be turned around. We can, can do it quickly. Around. Let's be positive. Let's be <laughs> positive. And also, you could just <laughs> transport and colonize our education system with that of England's. Well, or Abbey, that's, or that's it. You know, you could just bring in head teachers, mm -hmm. head staff, and say this is it. And if you're not with the program, you're fired. Because well, there's nothing worse than keeping second-rate teachers who are fighting the education of our kids because of their own laziness and ideological blinkers. And every year they're knocking out 20 kids who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and so we have to be, but we have to be forceful and we have to back this government, um, even though they'll make mistakes. We have to back them. Definitely. And, and to you give know, them the strength. 
it would absolutely and we've got to there are some things i think that need to be mandated and need to be mm. compulsory for teachers mm. and, and no you know new zealand teachers very much um no we don't all have to do the same thing but if you think of something like as simple as handwriting if you've got little johnny right. who's who's the little most transient child who's gone from here this house to this house to this house different schools and every school he goes to is getting a different he might get handwriting at one school might not at another one he might get this that and so on they are the most disadvantaged children whereas if we've got consistency of practice that's right you know, we we will raise achievement for those most disadvantaged because they're getting something that's um, consistent rather than a whole hodgepodge of of education. I, I see it in how they've worked out. I got my little boy in the swimming class, mm-hmm. and I can see they have a program. How to, they know now how to teach kids to swim, mm. and it's amazingly efficient. Mm-hmm. And he can go from coach to coach, from swimming school to swimming school, and just slot straight in. Yeah. Can't do that in reading. Whereas imagine if they were all doing the same thing. I know. (laughs) All doing different things. I know. Yeah. Uh, Tell me this. Have you any thoughts for homeschooling your children? Um, I'm tempted. I'm actually tempted myself to um, even just run homeschooling classes. (laughs) Is part of the business rather than, yes. than, you know, and say, okay, I'm I'm running a writing class for an hour today for this year group. People who are homeschooling, I'll teach your children every day for an hour. That would be wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that would, you know. But. There you go. Well, thank you, Belinda. <laughs> thank you for being brave yeah. and speaking up, putting on your big girl blouse. <laughs> I was going to say pants, but that was rude. Um, Because I always talk about me putting on my big boy pants whenever I'm about to do something a bit scary. So putting on your big girl's blouse and coming on. Thank you for being so passionate and being such a good teacher. (laughs) And thank you for telling us about what it is like on the inside Mm. and that our fears and our concerns aren't misguided. No, they're not. And I think people just need to keep questioning. Um, There we go, ladies and gentlemen. That was Belinda Duggan. She is a very, very good teacher, clearly, given her CV and where she's been and what she's done. And clearly, she wants the best for our kids, not just a job. And oh, my goodness, if we were falling behind, not by months, but by years, before imagine what it's like when we do everything through a quote Hamari lens you're on rally check radio real talk with rodney hyde send me a text 2057 email me inbox at radio. sobering and worrying is what i'd call that thanks for tuning in to rcr reality check radio if you like what you're listening to or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to then get in touch with us now You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Reality Check Radio. Uh, It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Excited plus me. 
couldn't be more excited because we're talking about one of my favorite topics, Western A. Price, and we're talking with Phyllis Tichinen. Good morning, Phyllis. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks oh, my goodness. Oh, no, it's utterly a pleasure because this is just, to me, an amazing topic. And to read Western A. Price's work was for me one of those great big reveals you can't you can't look at those pictures and understand the depth and breadth and science integrity of his research from the 1930s without it completely you know drop kicking you into a paradigm shift yes. in terms of what it means to truly be healthy and yes. what we need to do to get there in terms of our nutrition, what we put into our mouths. And he had that window of opportunity mm. in the 1930s when he and his good wife could travel the world because aircraft and cameras were available and yet still visit traditional populations living as they had done for centuries all around the world and can compare them to their compatriots who have swapped a traditional lifestyle for the modern food. Mm -hmm. And it's those pictures. And of course, once you've looked at his book, all modern nutrition and dietary experts fall aside mm. because his empirical study with the control group yeah. is second to none. Yeah, absolutely. He was, I think we, we tend to skate over the fact that he had amazing credentials, not only as a dentist, and dentists in those times were trained as doctors. You just got to go through med school, and then you became a dentist. Oh, I didn't um, know that. I didn't. Yeah, know that, that used to be the model. Wow. Um, and so he was the president of the American Dental Association yes. for a long time. Head of the American Dental Association Laboratory with yes. you know, something like seventy technicians working on projects to look at um, dental health because they were starting to see all of this deterioration in not only overall human health, but dental health, more crooked teeth, more cavities. And he became a dentist like in the 1880s or 90s. So he saw a progressive deterioration in his career, was an expert researcher and when he should have retired, so to speak, he just really dived into that whole 10 or 12 years of intensive travel and documentation in ways, as you mentioned, we can't reproduce that now because the control is gone. But to have the foresight at that time to take food samples and have them transported back to the U.S. in the most sophisticated labs analyze them, do anthropological studies like what mm. do you eat, why do you eat it, do complete medical histories, dental records, 
and then go um, and do the same thing where members of the same tribe or family that had been isolated and only eating their traditional diets to then go and analyze what other members of their family or tribe recently moved to what he called the white man's foods of, you know, mm. corrupting, corrupting foods of modern commerce mm. to be able to compare even within the same generation, the deterioration in dental health, facial structure, and overall, you know, metabolic health was just stunning stuff. And while his book is old, while his book is big, it's eminently readable yeah. and eminently unputdownable mm. because For a, a whole lot of reasons, because yeah. the trips themselves mm. and the places they go are so remarkable. And he makes you think about things that you've never actually thought about, but are so obvious. Why is it that human beings have rotten, crooked teeth? <laughs> because yeah. you can't survive in the wild with rotten, crooked teeth or and kids' buckling teeth. You don't see dogs with buckled teeth. And, and when you see... And this is what he picked up on, wasn't it? Yeah. Native, I say that word native, it sounds derogatory these days. Indigenous peoples mm -hmm. and these men, women, and children have these most beautiful white teeth, teeth fitting in their jaws, brilliant smiles, mm -hmm. living in abject poverty to us but they are so healthy. And he wondered why. Yeah. He came to New Zealand, went up the East Coast mm -hmm. uh, with the help of Upper, Upper Rananata. Nata, yep. And he analysed what traditional, Maori still living traditionally eating, and he went to the Auckland Museum, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the numbers. He looked at like 500 skulls or 200 skulls or 60 skulls, a lot of skulls and found two cavities. And so most Māori died of old age without having one cavity. Yep. And broad dental arches, mm. which enabled them to have really generous smiles. And what's amazing is you dig a little deeper and the, the dental arch, you know, the width of our gums, in effect, so that all of our teeth, including our wisdom teeth, can actually fit in our jaw, um, that we have space for all of that, is determined by prenatal nutrition, whether our mothers and fathers were getting enough fat-soluble vitamins to be able to lay down the, the adequate or the optimal amount of bone in, in the womb um, to be able to have broad faces so we could have wide arches so that all of our teeth could fit in without being crooked or without being compacted or impacted. So that's just the most visible manifestation mm. of that need for fat-soluble vitamins. 
It also, this is important, impacts our lung capacity and things like the width or the diameter of the female pelvis. Mm-hmm. So things like asthma, reduced um, respiratory capacity, C-sections, those sorts of things are relatable to the nutrition of our parents. And there we can do something about that. Those people who are of childbearing age absolutely can alter for the good the the life of their children yet to come. And boy, do we need it because we have an epidemic of chronic disease affecting younger and younger people. Show me children who don't either, aren't either born tongue-dyed, have some kind of visible birth defect in the United States. It's one quarter of the children born have visible birth defects at birth. Um, It affects, I mean, we think it's normal for children to be wearing glasses or to get braces. It's not. It's a sign of ill health. It's astonishing. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it makes you angry and upset. Um, It's interesting, too, do you think, that almost our definition of attractiveness has become deformed? Oh, yes. Because we sort of like a lady to have a narrow jaw. Um, I saw this is a little obscure, Rodney, but it always comes to mind. I saw a study in a book, oh, probably almost two decades ago, in which they took, they tested the attention span of kids who were sort of six to nine months old. They were just at the sitting up, paying attention to the world stage, and they did little timed videos of them looking at how long would they look at two different female faces, okay? Mm -hmm. Which ones? Did they pay more attention to, look at longer, read, were more attracted to um, people who had narrow, women who had narrow jaws and who were, you know, decent enough looking by our standards, and then women who had measurably wider jaws um, and sort of rounder or squarer faces, and absolutely consistently, those babies were spent more time, were mesmerized attracted to women with broader faces and you think wow because they are selected to be attracted to good health be attracted to possible mates with good health yes so there's there it gets really deep really fast but really deep and and the same with bottoms bottoms did you say yeah like um Narrow hips are a problem. The twiggy, the twiggies of this world Mm. aren't built for childbirth necessarily. No, they're not. Remember that used to be um, sort of a a concerned mother asking her son, some woman she he was attracted to, but does she have good broad hips? Yeah, yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, that's the old traditional mother yeah. meme yeah they, they knew because uh you would maybe die in childbirth um half our listeners won't know who twiggy 
Ezo, I wonder if she's, I think she passed away recently. Did I get that right? I don't know. Yep. Tell me this. Yes. If you were, we've got a lot of time because I think this is one of the crucial things for health and wellness. And we have such a great opportunity here in New Zealand with our pasture fed animals. But it's tough for people because years and years and then years of faulty nutritional advice by experts have taught the complete opposite. Animal fat, saturated, bad, full stop. Eat, eat, eat um, highly refined carbohydrates, healthy. Kellogg's Sanitarium. Oh, so healthy. Eggs and bacon kill you when it's the reverse. Butter. Oh, terrible. Eat hydrogenated vegetable fats, margarine. This is such terrible advice. So contrary to the human health and how we've lived for centuries, for people not familiar with it, it's like you're mad. Yes. How and do then- you approach explaining to someone why everything they know about nutrition and health without sounding arrogant is wrong or a conspiracy theorist um, yes. put my hand up um, me too <laughs> um, in more I'm ways in in more ways than one and much, I joke much that it- back beyond before yes. you know covid came on um to be, to be the bully on the media street um i think the first thing with most people is you need they need to understand or they need to have a perception of a breakdown a problem a collapse of function if you will in their lives or their futures in order to rattle or shake them out of their mental groove or complacency about health and about the messages we've received all our lives about what is a healthy diet. And part of that is shaking us loose of the impression that the medical training of doctors has anything really um, worthwhile or scientifically grounded when it comes to education on nutrition. Doctors just don't know. They will parrot basically the diet heart hypothesis, which in effect says chronic heart disease, you know, atherosclerosis, heart attacks, um, blockages, those sorts of things are caused by just in simple terms saturated animal fat too much cholesterol just to make it really simple the books were cooked on that by someone named dr ansel keys who was a biochemist he wasn't a medical doctor he wasn't even an epidemiologist he really had very little training in nutrition but he got stuck into this notion that Mediterranean cultures post-World War II 
were extra healthy because they were eating no animal fat. There's a whole reason why they didn't have any animal fat to eat in Crete post-World War II. And, but he was quite a bullying personality, and he, he just was. thought he was onto something great. He took what they call the 22 countries data, and he cherry-picked that data down to six countries that would give him a straightish line indicating that the more saturated animal fat you ate, the more heart disease there was in those countries. However, when you put all 22 countries onto a chart, there's no correlation. So he, he, he was unscientific. He selected data, and then he drove that agenda into the medical um, literature um, in order, well, with the help of the sugar industry, the food processing industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and eventually with big ag and ag chemical industries, helping drive that agenda and the food processing industry, the likes of it, our food giants. It is a shocking story of scientific corruption yeah i would corruption i would i would recommend one particular book on that topic of what the the unvarnished science-based but still very readable by a new york times investigative journalist um nina teichholz and her book the big fat surprise excellent dive into all of the ins and outs of the history of how we came to demonize cholesterol and animal fats. And the result is we have more health problems than we did when this whole bandwagon kicked off in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, how can, if we're having more heart problems, how is it that you know, a limit. We, we've all reduced our fat consumption over the last forty to fifty years, but it hasn't made a dent in heart disease, and all of the other chronic illnesses are only getting worse. So, reducing our cholesterol is clearly not the answer. Plus, frankly, statins kill. Yes. So we I, had no child obesity mm -hmm. when we were kids. Now it's chronic. Now it's chronic. There are some really chilling statistics, admittedly, out of the United States, but our situation here in New Zealand is very similar. We have a similar medical system, similar diets. And uh, it used to be in the 1970s, the good old CDC statistics were that approximately 6% of the adult population had some form of chronic inflammatory disorder. So cancer, heart disease, allergies, those sorts of things. 6% of the adults. In 19, 2017, it was closer to 50% of the grade school children were on some form of medication for chronic inflammatory no. disorder. Yes. And this was a crime that Western A. Price spotted for us mm -hmm. ahead of the crime. Yes. Yeah. 
we separately would have become awakened to it and COVID was just another variation. And we came into COVID, most of us, with impoverished immune systems battling some form of chronic inflammation already, which would have been heightened by the the experimental jab, GMO, if for want of a better term, protein to prompt more inflammation. Mm. Bad juju. It's a good approximation to living healthy to think about nana and great nana mm. yeah i like the expression never eat anything that your great grandmother wouldn't have immediately recognized as food yeah and because she ate like generations ate mm -hmm. and we came along with the pharmaceutical industry, with the supermarkets, with our nanas wouldn't have imagined this, industrial food mm -hmm. where you buy food in a box. And it's got the heart healthy tick on it. And it's got someone running a marathon or an Ironman on the front. So eat this box. The story, I've... I had read all the stuff and I got so into it. Now it's all flooding back. You know, the phrases, hydrogenated fats, mm -hmm. this fructose sugar, and how the Kellogg's and sanitarium took a rubbish food, a waste food, and turned it into the breakfast of choice and made it a healthy breakfast and pushed aside eggs and bacon for this highly processed rubbish it's it is empty, it, empty it, calories it's a it, it's a negative for a negative our food. bodies to eat processed grains like that in almost any form there's so, they're they're dead there's no enzymes there are no fat soluble vitamins and a lot of the goodness that's touted on the label is through fortification in quotes they're adding synthetic um folate or iron or things into it to to boost its nutrition and that's because there's pretty much none in there you're eating cardboard in effect processed cardboard the equivalent of cardboard and again well, it's terrible we don't want to sound like proselytizers and we don't want to sound like we know best and other people don't but we've all been on a voyage of discovery. Um, tell us how you came across Western A Price. Well, I, I need to give credit to my mother. I think I was pre-programmed in the womb, so to speak. My mother, post-World War II in California, was a devotee, if you will, of um, Dr. Adele Davis, who was a nutritionist, wrote several books and was sort of you know, moderately popular in that post-war period um, in terms of nutrition. And this was when when a lot of um, the initial food processing started. You know, you started to move, we were moving towards TV dinners and processed packaged foods and canned foods, pre-bottled processed foods. My mother 
uh, refused to go there. She'd read Adele Davis's books, Let's Be Healthy, Let's Have Healthy Children. And as a result, um, we had a cow. I had raw milk as a child. Um, we killed our own beef. I we didn't buy processed food. I think the more processed packaged food we bought would have been spaghetti or something like mm. that. Um, we had a vegetable garden and I was always ashamed of my lunches when I went to school because I had weird stuff, you know, wholemeal bread instead of white rainbow builds bodies, 12 ways. None of these prepackaged hostess Twinkie things that were laden with sugar and it you know it was it was a stigma to me at the time and i am so grateful now so i grew up basically without much processed food and always nutrition has been a consideration for me the only thing i would fault my mother on there were six of us on one my father's salary so Butter was a little bit, even at that time, beyond um, the diet. We, we would have gone through a lot of butter. So instead, we had margarine. But mm. once I came across Weston A. Price's readings in, in the early 2000s, you know, everything came together for me. And I stopped trying to, you know, limit my salt intake or, um, you know, cook in olive oil or things like or even occasionally I'd been in using soy oil. So it was for me, it was a revelation. It was like, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're eating nose to tail and it dovetailed with, you know, around that period, I um, got back into my soil science background and learned a great deal more about biological agriculture and the links between healthy soil and nutrient dense food and how it's just about impossible to get high vitamin mineral content nutrient dense food in a conventional agricultural system where you are nuking the soil the crucial soil microbes um, that do all the nutrient transfer um so you know it, it does for me it, it led right into my career in soil consulting farm consulting get nutrient density to move towards an organic status or at least to be farming for a living landscape without the use of synthetics many of which are most all of which absolutely are connected to the agrochemical industry which is very closely linked to the pharmaceutical industry mm. so you, you know you you keep looking which is connected to the medical industry, you keep looking. It's very circular. It's a very incestuous, if you will, effort to garner incredibly obscene profits at the expense, not only of the environment and our water quality, but our health and our ability to think accurately and to have beautiful, healthy, intelligent children. Who so you well came across... You came across Western A. Price work in the early 2000s. Yes. What prompted that? How did that come about? You were living in New Zealand. I was living in New Zealand. I'd lived in New Zealand since the later 80s. And, you know, frankly, I can't remember precisely how it happened. I just had heard it 
once or twice and then decided, yeah, I need to find out more about this. Nutrition is very important to me. And it definitely blew my doors off. And Isn't that extraordinary? So mm -hmm. you were already predisposed to it because all your life nutrition was important. Yep. So it's not like, oh, you just eat for, you know, my dad, my mother was very good with us, but my dad was you eat, you know, you eat for fuel um to get through the day and you know chomp it down but my mother was very good with our diet um our nutrition but here was you up to speed on it a soil scientist mm -hmm. came across western a price did you read his original work or did you read someone who wrote about his original work I first read someone who wrote about him Sally Fallon through the oh, western a price found it amazing and she's a good American um, girl who's married a good Kiwi. Mm -hmm, that's right. Um, two in a row. So, a and row. then, and then I, I read, I've read several times his, his work, his tome, um, nutrition and physical degeneration. Which, by the way, you can ferret out, download um, online, maybe even from the Weston A. Price Foundation yes, website. There is a PDF, an ebook, well worth downloading even just oogling the photos there they are the you know the picture is a thousand words that mm. is never truer i think than anything than those photos you came across it and it blew your doors off to quote you why um i my background is in soil science and environmental management slash policy and most of the the professional jobs I held before, you know, becoming a mother were in science policy or environmental policy analysis and implementation for the California state government where I was living. So I like to look at things from a scientific perspective. And uh, for me, that first step has always been first you follow the money. Who wrote the study? that kind of thing, who's paying for this, and how accurate and unbiased can I expect the research to be? Having satisfied that, um, I really enjoy the, the linkages that happen when um, someone, the likes of Weston A. Price's stature, pulls anthropology, nutrition, soil health, um, and human health and community dynamics together in one one framework, which is which is what he did. It was truly, truly amazing. It's a for me, it was a pathway that linked my interest in soils and my dedication to nutrient dense agriculture and human health all together with the science rationale behind it his his discussion of the critical importance of the very things that we have been taught you know pushed into avoiding all of the sources of fat soluble vitamin a and d and k2 when you realize the extent of the deception for want of a better word um it made me dedicate myself to combining you know soil science consulting 
and helping farmers to understand the importance of their role in human health, mm. not just animal health or soil health. Those things are all linked. Um, did you change your lifestyle finishing the book? Um, not immediately, but ultimately, yes. I went back into active farming and had the had a property um, outside of Havelock North and did, you know, experiments for want of a better term on creating nutrient dense pastures and a variety of animals and um, just experiments with how to raise the most the most healthy, most marbled. Um, beef and and dairy meat that we could hope to hope to generate so that we actually have the most nutrient dense high fat soluble vitamin content uh, butter cream organ meat and and beef the it's hard to have this discussion in many ways for outsiders to overhear and listen in on because we are cultish in a way, aren't we, with so many little triggers. And for someone who's not aware of this magnificent work, it's impossible to process literally unless you've seriously looked at the book. But there's a couple of things that stood out for me in his book. His first place that he visited was an isolated, he and his wife, was an isolated village in the Swiss Alps that hitherto was several days' walk to get to. Yeah. But a new road had gone in and they could do a leisurely drive and walk up to this village. These, these villages had been isolated from the rest of the world by these deep valleys and had defended their valley because they had a natural fortification. And they lived, funny enough, they didn't eat a lot of meat, but they ate a lot of milk and cheese. And he and his wife were just astonished by their rude good health. And he were measuring their jaw dimensions and recording their teeth. And this was a bit that shocked me. He could look at an adult who might be 50, 60 years old and he could say, oh, have you been away? And they would have had this village supplied the Swiss guards that guarded the Pope. And he could tell that they had had a year or two away in Rome because they had a, a spotted tooth decay. Wasn't that astonishing? It was. He, he, uh, he, his stories of two things stood out for me that, you know, he would do dental examinations of everyone in the village and record all of that. And he found things like one to two to three cavities per thousand teeth, maybe. And none of them. A thousand teeth. Yeah. A thousand, thousand teeth. teeth. Yeah. Plus. He, they, you know, th these kids were alpine elevations. The kids were running around barefoot all the time, in and out of freezing streams, um, as you said, rude, 
good health. And what struck a chord with me was, as you mentioned, they had a really fairly limited uh, diet. They had um, sourdough rye bread that they aged for a month. Uh, and they had lots of cheese, and they had greens when they were available, meat. Um, but they considered this, this, this is bells and whistles for me. They knew that when they took, when spring came, they would move their cows up to the higher, now defrosted, if you will, snow-free, higher alpine meadows, with this natural diversity of unfertilized, unsprayed pastures. And that early milk was considered literally sacred, that they would bring mm. those first milk, the cream from those first milkings back down from the meadows where the cows were, make butter out, out of it. And there was a special service in the church with a bowl of this lit, bright, deep orange, high vitamin A and D, K2, conjugated linoleic acid, nutrition-packed butter, which was blessed and, in effect, reserved for those people in the population who were most vulnerable or most needed it. The pregnant um, women, the young children, and the elderly, who for whom it was considered medicinal. Isn't it a beautiful story? And they knew it. They intuitively knew it in their, in their bodies, that this was the most sacred and powerful food in their environment, that their environment gave them. And they, he traveled to, was it the inner or outer Hebrides? Mm -hmm. Of Scotland, outer probably, yep. And there was a village where, contrary to the Swiss, they lived on fish. Again, tuberculosis unseen, respiratory diseases unseen, heart problems unseen, tooth decay unseen. He literally travelled ten. I can't remember whether he recorded it as miles. I suppose he did. I think it was like 10 miles to the nearby village that had opened up as a port and white flour and sugar were arriving and they had all the diseases of Western civilization. And it can so, happen quickly. It surprised mm -hmm. me that within the same generation, say, a family moving from a remote tribal situation where they weren't receiving any form of processed food, the corrupting foods of modern commerce, as Price called them, and when they moved down, as you said, to the port, the next children that were born in that family would have narrower jaws, they would have you know, turned out or turned in feet, those sorts of minor but but noticeable and important deterioration in bone structure and facial facial width. And of course, the devastation to Maori mm. 
smoking and alcohol were bad, but possibly quite worse, was what Europeans bought by way of food. Yes. Because yes. you went from, I because of Western A Price, I went back and I read the original diaries of the mm-hmm. early explorers, Banks, yeah. Joseph Banks, and someone else. And I pulled out everything that they observed of the health mm-hmm. of Maori. Yeah. They regarded them as the healthiest people they'd ever seen on earth. Yes, there's there's an excellent quote on that that I'm probably not going to be able to find, but I saved it. It was so uh, telling, and it basically said, oh, here it is, sorry. Come on. Can I read it for you, Mount? It's like Please. two short paragraphs. Please. Quote, this is from Weston A. Price, 1930, after his vit- visit to East Coast um, Maori settlements and comparing that, for example, with um, children who were in uh, boarding school in Napier. Quote, the Maori race developed a knowledge of nature's laws and adopted a system of living in harmony with those laws to so high a degree that they were able to build what was reported by early scientists to be the most physically perfect race living on the face of the earth. They accomplished this largely through diet and a system of social organization designed to provide a high degree of perfection in their offspring. To do this, they utilized foods from the sea very liberally. The fact that they were able to maintain an immunity to dental caries so high that only one tooth in 2000 had been attacked by tooth decay, and and then parentheses, which is probably as high a degree of immunity as that of any contemporary race, I'd probably say more, is a strong argument in favor of their plan of life. Dr. Weston A. Price, 1939. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. And Joseph Banks, when that Maori canoed out, they were astonished because they could judge the ages of them, and they would find 60- and 70-year-old men paddling these canoes like they were 26-year-olds. And, of course, within a generation, that health was lost and they had no, if you like, immunity to alcohol, tobacco, sugar, and flour, and possibly um, to devastating effects through to this day. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the colonialism, it was the damn food. Um, It's a remarkable story. Now, Correct me if I've got this wrong. It's my memory that Weston A. Price lost a son to tooth decay. He lost a son, yes, around to tooth decay, specifically to a root canal um, restoration, if you will. He had tooth decay. It got into his jaw. And even back like in the 1920s, 1910s, 
not sure of the date, they were doing root canals at that stage. I suspect that Weston A. Price gave his son the root canal that several months later killed him. And so I that prompted Weston A. Price to do geez, multiple years of extensive um, research through the American Dental Association lab laboratories on root canals. And what he found was that in every single root canal tissue that he examined, there were serious high-level um, bacterial infections with astonishingly powerful anaerobic toxins coming out of those infections. So that was has not been refuted to this day. So it is definitely a clarion call to people to look after your teeth so they never be false to you, which starts with a good diet. But particularly if if confronted with the suggestion that you get a root canal, don't do it. He um and of course those populations that he was visiting weren't brushing their teeth three times a day. No. No. With toothpaste. No. Well, toothpaste gets a bum, you know, a bum review from me. I mean, we yeah. we need to understand that we have ample proof that simply brushing your teeth with toothpaste is not going to prevent tooth decay. It, it's much more complex than that. And it starts with high quality um, bone tissue, for example, which really requires high levels of those fat soluble vitamins A, D, and K2 and minerals um, in, in the diet to actually form uh, tooth tissue, if you will, that functions properly, has a good flow of nutrition through the dental tubules that are just part of our teeth, um, and that we have good oral microbiome, that we have mm. good entire gut and mouth microbiome as well. And that's very challenging to do in these days where it's heavy on the antibiotics and pharmaceutical drugs, none of which are friendly to good gut health. Am I also correct in my understanding that Western A. Price trialed and tested, taking children particularly with cavities, giving them a good diet, in particular that fortified butter, and I'm trying to think some other oil. Cod liver oil. Cod liver oil, yes, indeed. Thank you for that. And the body oftentimes could repair the cavity. Yes. Yes. Isn't that astonishing? Mm. This is where the sufficiency, this is where nutrient-dense food is so important. Because if we don't have the building blocks, the mineral content, magnesium, you know, calcium, phosphorus, and all the trace elements, 
in our food from the get-go that hasn't been processed out, we're never going to be able to have the structural or the tissue integrity to function optimally. And that includes the integrity of our teeth and whether or not we're supporting you know, and feeding good bugs in our, you know, a balance and a diverse microbiome in our mouth, which is what, you know, naturally we should have. So this is, this is the, again, that link up back with how we do agriculture. It yes. is not possible to have optimal nutrient density. So vitamin and mineral contents, elevated vitamin A, B, C, all of the vitamins, all minerals simply can't be there in plants when we don't, when we use synthetic fertilizers, when we use in particular just about any form of pesticide, all of which are biocides. They nuke the very soil and plant microbiomes. So the bugs, the good bugs that are needed in order for that soil and that plant to actually absorb and incorporate all of the vitamins and minerals and structures that they're meant to have genetically. They, they mm. can't do it, which is where what, what Weston A. Price found. This is the part that really blew me away, Rodney. He tested, he brought back samples of all of those foods from the 14 or 15 different places he went around the world. He took them back to that amazing laboratory that he was the head of at the time and had them chemically tested and compared them to food samples from his upper middle class Cincinnati, Ohio dental clients, right? His patients. He did took the modern foods in the 1930s which, you know, at that stage, you could buy anything good. you wanted, yeah. you know. It was pretty much unprocessed. And he found that the average of the foods from, you know, Cincinnati, from the United States, and the average of the foods that he collected from, in quotes, primitive people, diets around the world, and the primitive people had four times more mineral content in the food basket that they were eating and 10 times more fat-soluble vitamin A and D than the, the richest, most well-fed people on the planet at that stage. My goodness. And is and, it mind? Sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say that, I mean, the final, oh my gosh, is... We have statistics from the 1930s and 40s from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They've been doing this breadbasket sample of what's the vitamin and mineral content of foods for decades. And between 1930 and 1990, across the board, we've had massive declines in, in the amount of vitamin and mineral food in staple foods, you, know, you name it, broccoli, flour bananas, apples, anything, we've, experienced, we've gone, we've dropped, you know, anywhere between 30 to, in some cases, 90% of the vitamin and mineral content of our staple foods in just that time period. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to um, 
Western A. Price uh, devotee, uh, Phyllis Tichinen. Uh, oh, my goodness, this is so wonderful. Am I cor- There's a lot of things I need to test with you, Phyllis. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in saying that modern soil science, and I put that in quotes, is regards soil as an inert material to hold up a plant, and all you need is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and that's what you measure, and I guess maybe your pH and moisture. Is that literally how they regard soil? Am I oversimplifying it? Um, that is simplified, but that's the basics of it. Um, it's getting better. You know, full credit, there are more and more farmers and more ag consultants who are beginning to realize, like we're realizing with our own microbiome, that biology yes. is an important aspect of how soil functions to grow crops. And that's positive, and that, but and that, we have a waste of and that the soil is an ecosystem Absolutely. of microbes working in symbiosis with plants, ensuring that they are taking the nutrients out. And of course, here in our own bodies, we're chock-a-block full of microorganisms, bacteria and yeasts. And a lot of the diseases that we hear about are a problems of what do you call it a dis dis something dysbiosis 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 where uh you've been cleaned out of the good bugs and the bad bugs has taken over you can't digest food properly uh getting good bugs back into your system is vital to good health because those good bugs don't just help with your digestion and critical to digestion as I understand it, Phyllis, they're part of your hormonal system and your brain function. Yes. And your emotions. Isn't that extraordinary? And it your is. emotions. Yep. Really simply, there is a nerve called the vagus nerve that goes from our gut, you know, up up our sort of the right and left sides of our body, up our necks and behind our ears, into our brain. And they are quite convinced that literally that is not only a a major nerve conduit for signals um, from our brain to our gut, but from the microbes in our gut back up to our brain, literally in the form of traveling microbes. So it's marvelously complex, but we are absolutely dominated by our um, microbial communities. And they do not respond, just like the microbes in the soil, they do not respond well to disinfectants, um, antibiotics, um, or any form of biocide. And that includes all of the pesticides. Mm. Remember, I say biocides because I want it to be inclusive. Remember of everything. Of yeah. everything. Well, people will say, well, there, there, you know, some pesticides are okay. I mean, yeah, some we need more than others. Some, like many of the herbicides, it's just habit, practice, aesthetics. We don't like the look of weeds, what have you. But ultimately, all of those synthetic compounds and even some natural ones that will kill bacteria through damaging cells are biocides. They kill life. And the thing we tend to 
lose sight of is that for many of the things that are killed by the pesticides we routinely use in agriculture have the same cell structure as we do. They have a cell, elective cell wall, they have cytoplasm, they have a nucleus, they have mitochondria, and those are the things that pesticides attack, if you will, or disable. So why would we think that any of those compounds that kill life and damage cells that are pretty much identical to ours would not also be harmful in the long run to us, even at small doses, which I is well, why, yeah. I, I, we just need to remind ourselves of that scientific expert, Saucy Wiles, uh, with the pink hair telling us, oh, no, you take the jab and it just stays in your arm and just breaks down in a day or so, yeah. so confidently, right? And then they're saying, oh, no, we apply these biocides to the soil and they just kill the things we want to kill. And then they just break down, down. And it's all good. And you will be fine. Is it my understanding correct? Because I tell these stories. And you know how sometimes you think, oh, I can't, I couldn't put my finger on this if I was told to, but it's in my head. Mm -hmm. That Western A. Price, my hero, one of my great heroes, he and his wife. I always mention his wife because she was by his side all the way through. Absolute heroes. And a beautiful book. Not hard work to read. Unputdownable. When he presented his results to the dental profession, being the head researcher, suggesting that your best thing that you could do for your patients wasn't to drill teeth willy-nilly for cavities, undertake root canal, but rather in the first instance, give them good nutrition first. And that they had a vote. And that was voted down. Do you know that story? I don't know that story. However... It fits the pattern. It fits the pattern. You, we he see was that you know, now. Here he was, mind-blowing research, documented, absolutely ignored, never followed, and indeed, with Ansel Keys in the 50s and 60s taking center stage Totally destroyed. This may sound um, a little squidgy, for want of a better term, but I mean, we need to look, we need to remember that the quality of the fat that we consume becomes the quality of the crucial phospholipids, lipids being fat. So phospholipid is the name of the fats that create a bilayer, a two-layer part that is our cell membrane. And our cell mm -hmm. membrane is crucial for functioning of all cells, letting things in and out, food in, you know, toxins out. And it's our major antenna, if you will, transmitter 
for communication between cells. Okay, so that phospholipid bilayer is evolutionarily meant to be high vitamin A, D, K2 um, quality saturated animal fat. That's the way we're evolved. That's what our bodies have been functioning on since the Paleolithic. Now, when you replace that lipid bilayer with plastic fats, fake fats, vegetable oil fats, so corn, soy, canola, rice bran, those kinds of highly processed, highly sprayed um, and vegetable toxic. oil and toxic vegetable GMO and toxic um, vegetable oils, you completely disrupt um, cell membrane function. You are you are creating insulators and you're disrupting the ability of food to go in and toxins to go out. So we're aging our cells and our cells aren't then communicating with each other properly because they've got this plastic veil around them and the messages aren't getting through properly. The result of that is a large contribution to most of the chronic inflammatory disorders that we have. So my suggestion to everyone is stop demonizing cholesterol. We absolutely mm. rely on cholesterol, as you mentioned, for our all of our hormone formation, male and female, our cell wall structure and ability to communicate um, and for brain function, for coding our nerve synapses, for feeding our good gut microbes, for internal bandages, all of those things cholesterol do. And we need more cholesterol as we age, not less. And yet, not only are we told to eat margarine and only cook in canola oil, for example, you know, we we have cholesterol lowering drugs pushed on us, which have oh got has to be one of the greater medical warts um, after COVID injections um, that we've experienced as a species. This is an incredibly destructive um, process with lots and lots of side effects. And they've cooked the books on, the um, books. and you just have to keep remembering that like those those dentists who rejected um, Weston A. Price's science back in the 30s and 40s, they were already, you know, eating less saturated animal fat. They were eating cottonseed oil, which is toxic. They've had we've had 20 or 30 years of it by then in the American diet, and that stuff makes you think funny. So, it, once again, it gets back to follow the money. Who, you know, if if we can remain functioning but somewhat ill and on a lot of supplements or drugs, that makes a lot of money for a whole range of industries or interests, pharmaceutical interests, egg chemical interests, processed food interests. We we just need to understand that natural is much, much better. We really need to get taste um, and nutrition back into our food and a whole bunch more butter. And the interesting thing is, Phyllis, 
is for mums and dads listening and nannas and granddads, for yourself and for your children and your grandchildren, you don't have to rush out and start living in an organic farm and having a cow. Anywhere in New Zealand, you can get good eggs, you can get good butter, you can probably get raw milk if you scout around, and then throw away the vegetable oils. Don't even wait till you finish them. Take them out to the tip. Use animal fat yep. at every opportunity and butter. And cook wholesome food, not in a box. Um, and my special favorite fur is and bone broth. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you can make bone broth in your sauces. You can just take it as a sauce on your dinner. And once you start making bone broth on a regular fashion, which is very easy to do, yeah. um, the flavor and the fulsomeness, and by bone broth, Phyllis and I are talking about getting the minerals and the fat from, uh, what's it called, in the, the marrow. Um, and making beautiful, rich gravies. And, oh, that is nutrition to, to die for. Um, lots of collagen, lots of lot, um, yes. bone-based minerals. Yes. And we, we have to stop being fat-phobic. One of the things I think yes. that is astonishingly um, harmful to the point of being ridiculous is that we, we spend all of this money, all of this fuel, importing killer vegetable oils in New Zealand in order to be, in quotes, heart healthy. And at the same time, we have all of this amazing dairy, beef, and sheep and pig mm -hmm. fat that is being, you know, that has the, uh, the abattoirs in effect. They're not putting it into pet food. They, you know, they have to pay someone to haul it away. Mm. What, that we is are, what we need for health. We, we're rolling you, in it, and we're not using it. And New Zealand is a paradise if you're a Western A pricer. Absolutely, because you do, I don't know of a better place where you can, in any part of New Zealand, you can literally overnight change your diet. And I promise you, when I changed my diet, I thought better. My mind cleared. Yeah. I could lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, I could sleep better. I had more energy. My emotions uh, were more even. All these things mm -hmm. I discovered as literally in my, I think, in my late 40s. And then uh, I, my wife hates it when I tell personal stories. Um, my wife was a professional sportswoman. She was following closely. They had their own nutritionist, taught them nonsense. She was completely depleted. I just about had to get a gun out to have her eat butter, eggs, and bacon because she thought she was killing herself and she wanted to eat low-fat yogurt and white toast with margarine. Her health transformed itself and 
we fortunately got onto Western A price before the birth of our three children and three healthy children who grew up Western A price. And you can actually see the difference, I'm sad to say. You Absolutely. can see the difference. That's a wonderful testimonial, and it really fits the profile. Absolutely. Mm. It's difficult to overemphasize the importance of fat soluble vitamins. And, yes. you know, people will say, well, I get my vitamin A and I get my vitamin D from the sun. That's, we don't get enough of that. We don't, no. we're not out there naked most of the time. So mm. that's definitely not enough vitamin D to last us. And crucial vitamin A, people will say, well, I eat lots of carrots or I take vitamin A tablets or I get it in the beta carotene. It is not the same thing. You really need to have the actual natural vitamin A retinol that only happens in mostly ruminant saturated animal fat. Yes, in fish, cod liver oil, it's a really excellent thing to take if it is really high quality unfortunately expensive cod liver oil that you keep in the refrigerator but we can get you know excellent nutrition from our fats what i would like to see i would like to see if we, the government is really going to get serious about health in new zealand maybe we could work out some kind of subsidy if you will to keep the price of butter way down half mm. or a quarter of what it mm. is now that would how much butter do you put on things lots i yeah. aim for at least a quarter of a cup of butter a day preferably a half a cup if i don't see a teeth teeth mark on my sandwich it's right. not enough butter <laughs> absolutely. absolutely oh phyllis it's wonderful and for people that are new to this you're in for a treat uh, Sally Falloon's book, Nourishing Traditions, is a must. It's a cookbook, but it's a cookbook with an explanation for why you cook like this. So it's an introduction to Western A Price. We've had Sally Falloon on, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, and also Google Western A Price PDF, download his book, and you can literally read it a chapter at a time because they're complete. Uh, on their travels, they'd go to one place, the Swiss, they'd go to New Zealand, they'd go to Florida and see people, Indians living uh, as they had lived for centuries and then compared to Indians that were living in the towns and the cities. Uh, it's a beautiful book to read and uh, you don't have to rush off and do all this complicated uh, living um, back to nature you simply have to make different food choices, which is hard because we've been so conditioned. And food and nutrition, it's a bit like religion and politics. They're hard to discuss and they're hard to change our minds about. Um, but the first step is to read. To education, it's, you know, it's one of these, don't take it personally, just get to the science, yeah. just read more extensively. Look at the statistics, start to question, well, we've got such a great diet and we're, you know, comparatively wealthy. Um, why are our health statistics in the basement? Ultimately, you know, 
there's a lot of information out there. I recommend people go to the Weston A. Price Foundation website. Mm-hmm. All of the journals, excellent journals from the last 24 years are there for reading. It's, it's, it's several university years worth of nutritional education in mm-hmm. on that website and and support so i recommend subscribing to the journal and and accessing all of the resources that are online including cooking videos and pdfs they they have a very evolved education program highly recommended to everyone and go home and pour those vegetable oils down the yeah. sink and get several you know kilos of butter in the refrigerator <laughs> Yeah. Hey, and um, the great thing is, even at, you know, 50, change your diet. Oh, what a difference. Just the energy level sleeping. Oh, so much better. Phyllis, we've been talking to Phyllis Tichinen. Phyllis, I'd love to have you on again. I'm happy to come back. Because we've got a lot to talk about, a lot to learn, a lot to discuss. And um, also, you become quite a good cook when you start cooking um, with animal fats and in particular i'm a devotee of julia childs and much better flavor much yes. better flavor with animal fats so much better you're a delight you're on really Check radio real talk with rodney hyde we've been talking to phyllis titchenin oh what a breath of fresh air what an amazing story i don't know how you vegetarians and vegans are feeling right now um, but you'll feel a lot better uh with a bit of bacon and some butter and warm milk uh, oh my goodness I shouldn't have said that. Real talk with Rodney Hyde. That's what we're called. Send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Here on Radley Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a uh, text, 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. We've got our regular feature with Tane Webster. Oh, my goodness, talking politics. Tane, a lot happening. Yes, so much has happened in the last couple of days. Well, not as much as was happening in the last few months, though. Yeah, and we've got questions coming in. Yes, yes. So Vicky asked, I'm curious about, well, hi, Rodney and Tane. I'm curious about associate ministers. What is their role? Are they given specific projects? Are they more of an assistant to the minister? Thanks. I'm learning a lot from your sessions. Great work. Oh, thank you, Vicky. Um, I was an associate minister and I had associate ministers. Uh, I was associate minister of education. I was associate minister of commerce. And I had an associate minister, John Carter, for local government. So it's a very, very great question. And Ministers, in terms of political power, are top of the heap, right? Um, they get they get a warrant, and they're in charge. Now they run everything past cabinet of a major uh, note, but they set the policy direction for the areas. Now the areas are set out in their warrant. So when you become a minister, you get a warrant. And it's so different to being an MP. It's like crazy because you think, oh, yeah, MP, minister, you're just you're still sitting in parliament. 
completely different, constitutionally completely different set of responsibilities. Why? Because you're in charge. You're in charge of departments. You're in charge of the policy settings. You're responsible for everything that happens. Associate ministers, mm, not so much. What happens with an associate minister is that they get, I'm actually trying to think, I guess it is a warrant. I'm trying to remember, or a letter. But they have set out uh, in their warrant what their responsibilities are. And it's dictated by the minister. So this is your job. It could be a nothing job. It could be a lot of job. But everything they do is overseen by the minister and get, can be kiboshed by the minister because it's the nature of responsibility that you can only have one person in charge in our constitutional setup, and that person is the minister. So associate ministers work closely with the minister. They have a carved-out area of responsibility that will be set out in their warrant and set out publicly. They'll typically meet with their minister uh, once a week, and officials will be reporting to the minister as well as to them what they're up to. And the minister would like to know most closely uh, what the associate minister uh, is up to. So, for example, when I was associate minister of education, I had responsibility for um, special needs, for gifted, the gifted program in the schools, and for partnership schools. Who was your minister at that time of education? Anne Tolly. Oh, yeah. So um, they didn't trouble me much, um, but anything that I wanted extra, like a legislative change or money, uh, it would be up to the minister. And I met with uh, Minister Tolly and officials weekly and went over the matters and had briefings very much depended on the relationship that you build with the minister. I found Minister Tolly to be very good to work for, and she was very happy that I was taking something off her plate and wasn't causing her any grief. So that's how it works. It is a very, very narrow role. It can be extremely uh, frustrating and extremely small, and it depends on the relationship with the minister. Right. I think it's easier when you're from another party because it involves, like, Minister Tolly had to be careful with me in a funny way because I was leader of the ACT Party in coalition with her national party. And so any difficulty, I was also meeting with the prime minister on a weekly basis. So <laughs> I had this odd inverted sort of relationship whereas in the ministerial role I was subordinate to her but I could also bring the government down <laughs> so she had to be wary because I literally could trot out of her office and trot into the Prime Minister's office the next day and say I've got a problem I suspect if I'd been a junior national associate minister I would have had a more fought time Right. Isn't that funny? I've forgotten all these things until that question came up. And then if you aren't quite on the level of associate 
then you are given the role of the the famous one we've discussed before, undersecretary. 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 I, I have no idea what that is. I have. Ne- I don't think there was a parliamentary undersecretary in my entire time in Parliament. There probably was, but that's not even a minister. That's a completely made-up role to make someone feel important. I've never. I don't have no idea what they do. I have never dealt with one because they don't get to ask questions in Parliament or whatever. So, for example, if you're an associate minister, uh, you can answer questions to do with your particular area. Um, but being minister is best. Um, and John Carter and I, we had a great time um, as minister and associate minister. He is. He was one of the fabulous guys, one of the fabulous characters of our parliament. And I enjoyed working with him immensely. And um, and he was fiercely loyal. I remember once <clears throat> I went into cabinet with a paper which was going to cap the ability of councils to increase rates. And it was going to force them to work at the rate of inflation. And... Um, without getting special dispensation from the minister or something. I can't remember quite how much it worked, uh, quite how it worked. But it was a fabulous piece of legislation to force councils to live within their budget rather than just continuously put up rates at exorbitant exorbitant rates. I also had had a proposal to limit what councils could do. Well, each time, I have to say, John Carter, I'm probably speaking out of school, but every time I went in, John Carter would back me 100% against his National Party colleagues. And we would walk in, and afterwards I would sing him the song of the, um, what is that one? Onwards, onwards rode the brave 500, cannon to the right and cannon to the left of them. <laughs> because we would go into cabinet, the two of us, riding our steady horses on behalf of rate pass and get bayoneted and machine gunned and, the artillery raining down us totally failed as cabinet fell on top of us. Oh, you know, we can't limit rate increases for councils. Councils have got to be able to have their money. They just have to sort of put up their rates and they have to take responsibility for it. And of course, we were there on behalf of rate powers, not councils. But of course, the fear was if we limited the ability of councils to put up rates, we might limit the ability of governments to put up taxes. I also had a bill for that, but that failed also. There you go. That was my associate ministers. I love John Carter. Right. So the the next question uh, for this session, had a few people ask this, and it basically boils down to what's going on with the Maori Party. uh, And yesterday, I believe it was the, the opening of Parliament, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and that, and there was traditional attire worn. I think even a haka inside. Is that is that the first time that's happened? I don't think it is. I think the Mary Party's done it before. Oh, it's disgusting. And everywhere you look, um, each parliament, the performances ramp up. So they get. Um, it used to be when I first turned up the parliament in '96, very solemn reflecting a thousand years of history and then as we proceeded it became more raucous and um 
MPs are anxious to get on TV, and so the one that's the most raucous or the most outrageous um, gets there. And so there's a huge incentive to who can put on the biggest performance, wear the biggest token around their neck, put on the craziest headgear, do the stupidest thing, because you will get on TV. I became famous in my maiden speech uh, in New Zealand, political circles, because Tuku Morgan was a new MP with me, and he'd got into trouble with his underpants, spending big money on it prior to becoming an MP. And he was refusing to speak, but had to give a maiden speech. But they were running behind time. And every journalist and every political tragic in the country tuned in to listen to Tucker, and there was me. <laughs> so I had the benefit of gaining fame off the back of Tuku Morgan's underpants. And that's what these characters are on about. The wanting to be noticed, the wanting to perform. I find it utterly depraved, utterly sad, and incredibly dangerous because they are creating and perpetuating a racial division. They're not leaders who are bringing us together, but they're leaders that are tearing us apart according to race. Tin pot tyrants have done that since day dot. Create an enemy, create your tribe, you're on my side, over there, there's the enemy, join with me, we will fight them, I will lead you. Oh, wonderful leader, we will swear obedience to you because you will keep us safe. And that's what the Maori Party is doing. And of course, it's a complete inversion of the purpose of a Westminster parliamentary democracy, which was what the signing of the treaty was all about was about to give us rights as citizens and uh, proceed by way of discussion and debate and majority rule rather than which tribe wins the fight. This is a hugely retrograde step. They themselves are unbelievably stupid, but calculating. They're stupid because they're following a neo-Marxist sort of program which is to say that it's how you identify that determines everything. That there is always an oppressor and the oppressed. This came out of Marxist analysis of the worker versus the capitalist, and it's been transmogrified into women versus men, the patriarchy. It's transmogrified into indigenous people versus colonialists. It's transmogrified into... Um, white people versus brown people. And so these characters in the Maori Party have picked up on that and saying, because we're brown, we're the victims here. And because you're white, you're the oppressors. And this whole parliament is a symbol of oppression because it's built by white guys. The worst things in the world, because they stand at the apex of, what is that word, oppression. And they can't get beyond that. They can't argue. They can't reason. They can't debate. They can't even come up with policy. 
They can't contribute to the debate. They can't defend their position because it's nonsensical and it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical because we're individuals. My, my behavior is not dictated because I'm a white male. I can reason and I can think through my behavior, but they can't allow for that. They think I'm a robot because I'm white and male. And what they're doing is they're teaching young Maori to be victims, not to try because they can't get ahead because they're oppressed, and to see their way forward as victory. And that's where it gets scary, because what does victory mean? I can't see how victory can be co-governance, because why settle for co-governance? Because all you're doing is sharing governorship with your oppressor. Yeah, maybe maybe they want actually to have their own kind of country or section of the country or something like that. Well, they want all of New Zealand. They won't even be able to articulate that. That's how stupid they are. But if you follow the logic through, and this is why when you see them wearing the Green Party, wearing their Palestinian cloaks, um, and they're using that language, they're using exactly the same language that the Maori Party uses. Uh, <laughs> crazily, this is how stupid they are. Crazily, the Israelis are the colonizers, despite being there for thousands and thousands of years and having been colonized themselves throughout that time. Um, and they say there's no room here for the colonizers. So the Gaza cause that is being supported by the Maori Party and the Green Party against the, quote, colonializers of the Jewish people isn't a two-state solution, isn't a good fence and we'll have this bit and you have that bit. It's the total destruction of Israel and the removal one way or another of the Jewish people. The exact same language and the same rhetoric is on display this week from the Maori Party. And I can't see how co-governance is the end point. Now, in addition to the, the parliament um, antics, in the morning they blocked roads uh, in some parts of the country and, and did a protest. Uh, or they called on people to. The Maori Party did. Yeah, and how how weird is that? Because here you are, you have demonstrated the wonderful thing of living in a democratic state where everyone is equal because they put their names forward, they stood for parliament, and they got elected to parliament, which is an amazing thing, right? Mm. Then they portray themselves as oppressed. Not only that, they're oppressed by a genocidal crown. Mm. Well, they've just demonstrated that the crown is falling over backwards to provide a parliament to which they can get elected and to which they can contribute. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's like 
in a lot of ways, I think I read a comment online somewhere saying, you know, that they're the most privileged, but they act the most oppressed. Yes. But that's the way of tyrants everywhere. So they're on their big salary. You know, that fellow flies over to Paris and puts on Instagram all the great meals he eats. Meanwhile. Who's that? Rawiti. He oh. went to Paris last year. Meanwhile, kids are missing out. The stats for Maori education are truly appalling. We know there's some um, shocking statistics at the schools. Can't blame necessarily the schools because they get into a downward spiral. The home lives are shocking. And sadly, kids are being beaten and killed, too often Maori. The Maori party doesn't speak to them. They're busy worried about kiddies in Gaza, about which they clearly know nothing. They say they stand for the Mokapuna here in New Zealand, but they won't stand with a little baby that tragically has been murdered. And we can't even, they won't even speak up about the killer. Why wouldn't the Maori leadership say, if you're truly Maori, if you're truly a person of integrity and courage, you'd speak up. You'd own up. Are you talking about the case of the... With a, baby um, Baby Yeah. Yeah. So they're all about pointing the finger away, away to the Middle East, King Charles, white men, and never accepting some responsibility. Of course, history has been bad. It's been bad to all of us. History has also been amazingly good to all of us, right? We've climbed onto the shoulders of incredible people who have built our country, Maori and non-Maori, immigrants and people that have been here for 100, 200, 300, 400 years have built this country. We're so blessed. But all they can do is posture and shout and point the finger. What one? What is one constructive suggestion that they have come up with? Having been... On the day they're sworn, in, sworn into our parliament as a political party privileged because it's a racial-based party with racial-based seats, which I'm against, they then start protesting and blocking people going to work as though this is some great success. How on earth, how on earth are they blocked? They don't like the democratic will because they want power, they want to dictate to everyone, and we shouldn't forget that there are engorged and enriched iwi elite who previous governments have attempted to succor and, um, shall we say, bribe, not in a, a legal sense, but say, here, we'll give you this treaty settlement. Here, we'll give you this preferential treatment. We will give you the special status in the Resource Management Act. We'll give you this special money for you to control. And the idea that somehow that would um, allay the concerns and mean that Maori don't complain. But the complaints have just got louder because successive governments have allowed this narrative to take a hold and have acted on it. 
that there is such a thing as systemic racism in New Zealand, that these institutions are all bad, and that the solution is to divide us by race and hand out resources accordingly, more particularly to hand out resources not to the individuals, but to tin-pot dictators who present themselves as leaders of this iwi, which hitherto didn't exist for 100 years. And then make up in legislation these quasi-corporations without any accountability. And they can fund this. They can push for this. They can call for this. And at present, they're calling for co-governance. Then it'll be two nation states. And then it'll be one nation. Why would it stop? It's mm. it's sad. And, and the saddest thing, always, is for the people they claim to speak for, the makapuna. Because this isn't helping them learn to read and write. This isn't firing up their belly to be the next Elon Musk or to succeed in business and in life, but rather to be born a victim. The day you're born, they're born with a grievance. You know, you just mentioned there about the one state, two state, you know, for, for here and where this might go. I just reminded me and I just double checked with a Google search. So there was actually a, in Australia, you know, these, these trends are the same in all, well, many of the new world countries that Europeans explored and settled, Australia, Canada, United States, et cetera. And uh, in Australia, they've actually had people, activists and an Aboriginal lawyer and activist propose a seventh state uh, mm. that would be run by the Indigenous people with its own parliament. I'm guessing probably somewhere more in the in the middle, you know, in that part of Australia. But uh, and that was an article. That's an article from 2016. You know, so the, these conversations are, are happening. You know, yeah, what would that look like in New Zealand? That's Gaza, right? The Gaza Strip. All the Jews were removed by the Israeli government. They handed over power to the Gaza Strip, to the Palestinians. They had an election, elected Hamas, never had another election. But Gaza and the Palestinians could have chosen to, we've got this bit of land, let's make it work. Beautiful place. Could have been a tourist destination. It could have succeeded all around the world, no more so than in Israel, were they willing that place to succeed. But they chose to be victims and to look over the fence and say our problems are being caused by Israel and therefore to enact violence. And I think the analogy stands. It's just you can't trace it all the way through. You can't imagine that when you pass the Treaty Settlement Act and start handing out and settling supposedly for historical grievances, you can't see where that will land, end. But I had a dinner once with the great Thomas Sowell in 1989, and he had studied racial conflict all around the world. And he told me that night precisely where this would end. And we're halfway there. Because it's no different, he said, to Sri Lanka, the Middle East. 
what's happened in Russia, what's happened in India, what happened in Malaysia. This is nothing unique. And in 1989, he, predict, he predicted racial division, separate laws, and violence. Because we've given up on the idea of every human being being equal before the law and having the same set of rights and responsibilities. And from that, you can't back the truck out. Because once you say one group is special, for whatever reason, one group could be special because they're supposedly cleverer than the other group or wiser. Or one group is special because they have been historically oppressed and you're trying to help them overcome that historical oppression. It doesn't matter the reason. As soon as you create it, you create a demand for more of it. And of course, it's like handing out money for free. You can never hand out enough. And as you hand out that money, the, well, let's say it like it is, moral fiber of the people decay because no longer do they have to take responsibility for themselves. It's like your kids. You look after your kids. You provide for your kids, but only for so long. Because you know if you keep them provided for, they'll never grow up. And we have created the situation where Māori have been infantilized, not 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 the Māori that you have in your neighborhood or at work, but the Māori leadership, because their way forward now is always to be special and to be more special and more special and more special. So much so that then where there's a suggestion to remove a special status, that becomes genocide, that becomes discrimination, that becomes racism. The exact obverse of what it is, actually, to treat everyone equally. This is a hard thing to unravel. And this is why you can laugh at the Maori Party, but they represent something. They got voted in. While they're silly, they actually know what they're doing. They will get re-voted in because they're standing up for me. And the TikTok generation love it. And they're sending a terrible message. Not the message of you can succeed against all odds, but the message that you can't succeed no matter what. It's terrible. And it's hard to believe that this has come to pass. The married leadership of past times would have been terribly distressed to see these clowns. There you go, Tane. It's som it's sobering and it's somber. And yes, we can take a great deal of fun and laugh at them, but my goodness, I don't know how we wind it back. I guess the good news is these clowns are waking people up to what is happening. There we go. Politics explained. Thank you, Tane. We'll see you next week. Yep, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate your answers to their questions.
Oh, well. You can send a question in, text 2057, email me, inbox at radio. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Amazing, isn't it? I think that I keep worrying that we're going to run out of guests and then people keep, mainly amongst our listeners, turning up and offering up a suggestion that we could interview them for. And they're always amazing. And you're thinking, these are extraordinary stories and we should be hearing them, but we don't. So it was wonderful to hear from Belinda about what's happening in our schools and how brave is she to speak out. But to tell us what's going on, and in particular, our MPs and our government need to know because it's up to them to fix it. They said they would. They need to. The slide is exhilarating, it would seem. And then, of course, Phyllis Tichinen on my one of my fave topics, uh, the great Western A. Price and what he discovered about human nutrition and physical degeneration by real science, by actual controlled real-world experiments over and over and over. Can't be replicated now, can't be seen again. But he was in this one moment of time where he could spot it and see what it is that ails us here in the West. And Tane, I did love his questions, particularly the one about associate ministers that threw me right back into my time in Parliament. So it was good to talk to Tane. Lovely to have you along. I'm looking forward to talking next week. Even more guests, great guests. Have a lovely weekend. Talk soon. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. 